0: Are you a dragon boat athlete? Have you ever thought about joining a team? Hornet Watersports makes high-performance, lightweight, carbon-fiber dragon boat paddles. You can choose from one of their many graphic designs. Don't settle for just a boring black paddle. I love their design so much that I have four different paddles. They also have all of the dragon boat accessories that you need, paddle bags, tip covers, tape, and more. Visit their website at hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK at checkout to receive 10% off of your order. That's hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK. Thanks for downloading. My guest on this episode is Tina Martel. She is a two-time breast cancer survivor, artist, and author from Alberta, Canada. Today, she shared her story, related to breast cancer. She talked about her journey and how she had to become her own best advocate because of the holes that are present within the healthcare system in Canada. Take a listen in, you don't wanna miss this story. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12 year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. I am here today with Tina Martell. Tina is a two-time breast cancer survivor. She was diagnosed in 2011 initially, and then also again in 2015. She hails from Alberta, Canada. So welcome, Tina, for being on the show, or welcome. I'm so glad to have you on the show.
1: (laughs) Well, thanks for having me, Melissa. I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about um, your initial diagnosis. So the diagnosis that happened in 2011, you were 54. Um, Were you getting... Like mammograms at that point? Was it just kind of something you were doing? Or how did that come about for you?
1: I was doing mammograms quite regularly. Uh, my mother had been diagnosed at 48. So it was something that was always on the radar. And then I, I have to admit that two years before I was diagnosed, I I kind of stopped. I just went, oh, for heaven's sake, I just don't have time. You know, how, you know how it gets, right? There's no problem, so you just think everything is fine. And what happened was I actually found a lump of myself on the right side. Now, I have had a history of cysts, so this was not really, you know, too much out of the ordinary, but something triggered for me, and I thought, this one isn't right So I I called my doctor and uh, I arranged for a mammogram and sure enough, yeah, it was, it was cancerous. So what
0: did you, what was the difference? Like, what did you think was, was it just something that you thought in your head or was it something that you felt in your heart or something that you physically felt? Like what made you think, "Mm, something's different about this one?
1: I, I think it was probably a bit of a combination the um, the cyst felt different, like usually they feel a little squishier, <laughs> if that, okay. anybody who's ever had one, right, knows that they, they, are, they can feel different, right, but this one felt hard and usually what happened with me with cysts was they would come and they would go, I'd have them for a few months and they'd disappear and that would be the end of it because I have had them quite frequently. But this one was hard and it hurt too, and which is very much against the, the myth that they like to have that, that cancer doesn't hurt. Absolutely. Uh, my experience on both sides was that it was painful. Okay. And that was one of the triggers for me was that hurt, and I don't think it should hurt. So, And it also seemed to be getting larger. And again, cysts can be a little bit tricky, right? Sometimes they feel from some angles they feel bigger than others, right? This one, I could swear, was growing. And I just, I don't know, all the alarm bells went off and I went, this one's not right. I have to go look at this. And that's what I did.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I will tell you that I'm very much guilty of, you know, if somebody reaches out to me, which happens very often, people will reach out to me and say, I found something in my breast what do you think? Like, what do you, and of course I never tell them what I think because I don't know. Um, (laughs) but here's what you should do. Right. And then I ask some questions like, is it hard? Does it move? You know, is Mm -hmm. it painful? Um, and you're right. The experience that I have always had and have always been told is that for the most part, um, it's not painful. You know, there are some that are painful. So I'm glad that you mentioned that because yeah. we had the um, the same type of cancer, both of us um, invasive ductal carcinoma. And so yeah. mine was not painful, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing this up because, you know, moving forward, I certainly won't tell people, you know, if there's not pain there, then that's a good sign. Um, or if yeah. there is pain, sorry, that that's a good sign. So yeah. um, I'm glad that you mentioned that.
1: One of my, I had a little bit of an experience just after I was diagnosed, a, a very close friend came to stay with me and she was telling me that her sister was in the same boat, that she'd found a lump and, you know, but the doctor had said to her, oh, don't worry about it, it, it uh, if it hurts, it's fine. And I said to her at that point, I said, you phone your sister and you tell her to get back in to see that doctor and tell him to look. And she did and she had breast cancer. Wow. So I, I think it's not as uncommon, perhaps, as we think it is. And if, if I hadn't said anything that it does hurt, I don't think she would have gone back for another year.
0: Right. And who knows yeah. where it would have been at that point.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So thank you. I mean, in, in all the time that I think I've had these conversations um, doing the podcast, and even just in general, I haven't met very many people who have had a lump that reported that it hurt. Um you know, different strands of cancer, uh, you know, can hurt for sure. So, um, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up.
1: (laughs) Good. Maybe we can save somebody else.
0: Absolutely. For sure. And that's the whole goal. Right. So, um, so you go in and you, um, I'm assuming they probably do some kind of an exam and they feel the lump too. Um, and so what, what kind of takes place after that? What was the next process for that?
1: Well, they had booked uh, a mammogram after, like, physically examining it. Of course, he said, yes, I think we should have a mammogram, and uh, we did a mammogram and an ultrasound, of course, followed by a biopsy. And um, I don't know how much experience uh, or how many biopsies you've had, but it's one of, it's probably of all of the, procedures they have to do, the one that I absolutely hate the most, because I find it very painful.
0: Amen, and I, sister. I, amen. amen.
1: <laughs> well, I had a very bad experience at the, with the very first biopsy I had, the, um, they didn't freeze me enough, and um, I had said, you know, I think you better give me some more freezing, like, I can feel that, and, and the um, radiologist was just saying, oh, it's fine, it's fine, like, suck <laughs> it up, kind of, and I thought, <laughs> Okay, so I I endured it about three times and then literally I was backed up on the table on all fours uh, yelling at him going, if you come near me again with that thing, I will beat you. I will rip your arms off and beat you to death with them. And (laughs) At that point, he decided it would be a good idea to give me some more
0: freezing. I would say so. so. I think smart man. I mean, he wasn't smart initially, but he became smart in a very short period of time.
1: <laughs> we educated them uh, yeah. but um, so so i went i went through the biopsy and of course you know the waiting which is brutal we all know about that and that's again a very difficult part of it is that you don't know what's going to happen and you tell yourself all kinds of stories that it's going to be okay or it's not going to be okay or you know i mean it's just it's a, it's a whirlwind it's a whirlwind while you're sitting there doing nothing Right. Which seems a little bit of a, of a duality, but it seems to work that way. But Yeah, so and, I, and the other
0: thing, sorry, I, the other no, thing too okay. is that, like, not only do we tell ourselves stories, but we also have other people that are telling us stories, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. doctors um, mm-hmm. and friends and family, and I know it's all very good intentioned because everybody yeah. wants it to come back to be, you know, non-cancerous. They want yep. yeah, they yep. want it to be benign. And, you know, and I get that. But, yeah, we really do create stories, um, you know, for ourselves. And then, you know, again, other people kind of create stories for us too.
1: Well, I, I think you're right in saying that some of the, the, the stories that people come out with, you know, and they all want to stay p- positive. God help me with that word. But, you know, I mean, that's so much of it. It's going to be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. One thing I never say to people people anymore when they're behind this particular eight ball, which always confused me because like, is the eight ball a different, you know, is, is it harder than the other balls? That's why you don't want to be behind it. I mean, I never really got that, but regardless, um, but they would, they would say things like, you know, it will be fine. I refuse to do that anymore. I just say, try to stay calm, try to do things that keep you happy. I won't say it's going to be fine because I don't know.
0: That's it. Yeah. And we don't know. And sometimes we don't it's very know. unsuspecting. Yes. You know, you yeah. never hope for, um, you know, somebody, I mean, you never hope for anybody to have breast cancer, but we're so, um, we have this belief that it only belongs to, um, you know, a certain population, right? So typically grandma age, mm-hmm. um, yep. you know, so somebody who's, you know, in their 60s, 70s, yep. um, you know, so we never really want people who are younger than that to think that it's even a possibility. So, yeah, we do really do. Create stories around that. So, I also don't tell people that it'll be fine. You know, it's yeah.
1: <laughs> whatever no, happens, you know, me let know. me know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. take let a deep breath. Know. Yeah. So, yeah. so I how? Um, sorry, how long was it in between the the biopsy and then you finally <laughs> being told? I,
1: it was about three weeks. I three think. weeks. Yeah, it was about three weeks because I remember having the biopsy and then going. Uh, I took a quick vacation and then I came back and um, I had just started school because I, I, I'm, a, I'm a college professor. I had just started classes and uh, we'd been in about, you know, a few days. So, yeah, it was it was three weeks at least. It might even have been a month.
0: Oh my gosh. I was expecting like three days, but three weeks. No,
1: no, 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 no. One of the things that happens, uh, I know everybody likes to talk about how great the Canadian medical system is. And in some ways it is a a wonderful system, but in many ways it has a lot of holes in it. One of the really big holes that's in, in it right now is the wait times for things. Um, I had to do genetic testing this summer and, uh, do you know what I was told? The wait for genetic testing
0: would be two to three years. Oh my gosh! So, yeah, <laughs> I, I would say those just, are big holes.
1: That's that's it's a big hole, and the wait times is uh, unfortunately one of the one of the biggest holes that's there. And I had said to the woman because um, we were. Um, I didn't do genetic testing at the beginning of all of this. I wish I had, but there were a number of reasons why I didn't. One of them being insurance. I was afraid that if I did the genetic testing at the time, there was no laws in Canada to protect mm. that information. So as soon as I did it, it would be available to the insurance companies who then could say pre-existing condition. Yeah. And although we do have a medical system in place, I... Could not have the additional insurance that I have, which really helped me through both diagnoses. I would have been it would have been much harder without that without those that funding, right? Absolutely. So anyway, I, so I refused to do genetic first genetic testing the first time. Now this time they have a law in place that that information is not available to anyone without you releasing it. So that's why I thought, well, this is a good time to do it. And um, when I when I was told two or three years. I I was just, I was shocked. I just, okay, fine. So I actually ended up doing it in the States because I thought, you know what? I I do, I'm one of the lucky ones. I have some disposable income. It wasn't that much money. And I thought, I'm just going to do this. So I did. So the the systems are, it's not a broken system. For the most part, it works pretty darn well, but there are definitely, when you have a chronic illness, uh, it's, it's a challenge.
0: Yeah. Right. Wow. Wow. Okay. So three weeks later and now you're <laughs> doing school, you're, you're teaching. Yep. <laughs> um, and so what kind of happens from there? I mean,
1: well, I get the call from my doctor's office that says, you know, uh, we have your results. And, um, I thought, okay, fine. So I had said, uh, uh, okay, I'll, you know, uh, I'll c- I'll come by and get them, and we had, actually, we doing a big event that afternoon, we were meeting with another uh, academic institution, and I was supposed to be there, I was supposed to be hosting this event, and I just said, look, I'm going to slip out, get my results, and I'll be right back, because I was still telling myself, no, everything is fine, and then when I'm sitting in the doctor's office, and the doctor, um, who I don't have anymore, luckily, was spectacularly unhelpful, it was just, When I walked in, uh, when he walked in, I was pacing and he said to me, why are you pacing? Like, no, hello, nothing. Why are you pacing? And I said, because I'm scared. He said, well, you should be. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going... Uh, okay, okay. Like, I I was so stunned at the way he delivered it that I don't even know that it's sunk in right away. Sure. Uh, yeah, because I thought, oh, my God, this, okay, not, not only do I have breast cancer, but this guy's kind of an ass. Yeah, <laughs> so, kind of.
0: I mean, let's be real. Yeah. <laughs> I would say kind of is an understatement.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to be polite because it's on air. <laughs> <laughs> Normally, I'm not that polite.
0: Yeah, well... Hopefully that doctor's not listening in. And even if he is, take a lesson. Take, take a, a lesson. lesson,
1: dude. Yeah, take <laughs> a lesson, dude. So I was in and out of there in like three minutes. And I, I said to him, so now what do I do? And he said, well, you just wait, the famous waiting. Uh, the cancer center will call you. And um, yeah, go. And I'm I, the next thing I know, I'm standing out in the waiting room and I'm going, like, shouldn't I have a pamphlet or like something. So you've been diagnosed with breast cancer. This is what you should do. I'm standing out there with nothing. And my husband is sitting in the waiting room and uh, I guess he saw the look on my face and he said, and of course it was so quick. He didn't, you know, he didn't really think anything of it. It was just like, well, you were only gone for five minutes. And I said, we need to go to the car and we get in the car. And then I turn around and I say to him, "I, I have breast cancer. And we just stared at each other. And I thought, I'm, I'm not sure what to do now. I said, I don't think I can go to that reception, so I think I should probably go home. So I went home, and of course, I couldn't couldn't get a hold of anybody at the reception to tell them that I wasn't coming. So I'm <laughs> trying to get a hold of one of my colleagues to say, this didn't go well. Please just go ahead without me. But there I am sitting on the couch going, wow. Like, my whole
0: life just changed. Yeah. And
1: I don't know what to do.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, you have you you just wait. You sit and yeah. you wait and you wait for yes. somebody to call you. Yep. Yeah.
1: That's exactly what happened except that I'm not really good at that. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> I don't blame you.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I waited I waited for a couple of days and I thought forget this I'm going to take control so I started making calls I started making phone calls and um, I actually had found found myself um, a surgeon uh, in a different city uh, through a contact and uh, made an appointment with him so by the time the cancer center here actually called me which I actually had to call them and uh, then they said well we'll call you back so a couple more weeks passed and I thought okay this is absurd. I can see now that this journey is going to be really, really difficult if I sit around and wait. So, what can I do to move this along? Good for and, you. And I did. I just whatever whatever I could do, whoever I could call on, whoever I could phone and speak to, and say this is what the problem is. So, by the time the cancer center here got a hold of me, uh, I, I had already I was already booked for surgery. I had already seen the surgeon. Because he he agreed to see me and, like, he said, can you come Monday? And this was basically a Friday. And I went, you bet, I will be there Monday morning. Wow. So that's how how fast. So I think one of the the lessons in in all of this is to try to take control. Don't sit and wait for things to happen to you. What can you control? Because it makes it, well... I mean, it's, it's nothing makes it easy, but I think at least having a hand in it for me anyway, it makes it made it easier.
0: Right. Absolutely. And there are, you know, I think there are some people who might be listening to this thinking I can totally relate to this. Like they told me to wait. I'm like you, (laughs) I'm not patient. Um, I want to know. Like I called my doctor several times and was like, when do I get the information? When do I get the like? Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm a little bit of a bulldog uh, when it comes yeah. to that kind of stuff, and so, and yeah. that's okay. Like you have yeah. to be your own best advocate through all of this. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. So good for you. I mean, it's a it's a hard lesson, and certainly yeah. not anyone that I would encourage people. You know, or say, I hope that you learn this lesson, <laughs> but um, it is a good lesson to have. So, yeah. so you, um, what did you opt for in terms of? Um, the surgery. So I know that the initial diagnosis was in the right breast. Um, What did you opt for in terms of surgery?
1: Well, I went in with a reasonably open mind. um, But after I spoke to the surgeon, he seemed to think that a lumpectomy would probably be more than enough. Now I did kind of struggle with myself at that point because I thought, well, if I have a lumpectomy, um, you know, does that mean that I'm going to have to have radiation and chemotherapy? Whereas if I have a mastectomy, I may not need that, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll roll the dice a little bit here. I'll get the lump back to me. Unfortunately, it had spread to uh, one of the nodes on the right hand side. So that once we'd done the surgery, I discovered that yeah, I would be on the line for for both chemo and radiation. Okay. And even then, I was still I st- still struggled with the idea of chemotherapy. And in retrospect, I have to admit, I wish I hadn't. Um, and why? It, well, <clears throat> I um, the other cancer actually developed while I was on chemotherapy for the first one, oh. so it obviously didn't work for me. And I okay. think I'm one of those people that it just—I've um, never been good with pharmaceutical drugs of any kind. So I'm not surprised that it wasn't particularly effective. And um, my oncologist did say to me, he said there is a small percentage of the population that it's not a good idea and he said it wasn't a good idea for you he actually agreed with me in the end result he right. said yeah we we probably should not have done that but I I never you know I I just feel for him because he's doing the best he can Absolutely. with the information that he has and everybody's body is so different but you're kind of treated like a widget you know like this is the treatment and this is going to work this is what we think it's going to work for you but
0: really he's you know he's he told me it, it's our
1: best guess
0: yes And that's it. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. You know, and and I I talk about that a lot. And I always, you know, I always want to make a point of, you know, this, the intention behind this podcast is never to persuade somebody to do one thing or another in terms of their treatment. You know, what works for me may not work for you. And what works for you may not work for me. Mm -hmm. It's just that you have to know what is going on in your body and to be able to advocate for you know, your own self, you have to, you have yeah. to be able to do that. So, um, yeah. Okay. And That's I think I, I
1: learned that I learned that really quickly that this was going to be something that I was going to have to advocate for myself. But on more than one occasion, while I was doing this, I thought to myself, what does somebody who's really quiet or shy or not very good at speaking up or thinks that you know doctors are the authority and absolutely everything and they know everything like how do those people manage like they they almost need someone to speak for them absolutely and that's a really difficult thing to do yeah. to so i i i wanted one of the things i really wanted to do after being finished was really um tell people about that, that they have to advocate for themselves, that they have to fight for themselves and they have to listen to what their body is saying. And um, my oncologist after a while, after working with me for several months, he said, you know what, every time you say something's going to happen, it does. He said, you are really good at listening to what your body needs and doesn't need. So it it kind of changed the relationship for us a little bit because he had more respect when I, when I would say no that's not a good idea. He actually would go, you, yeah, you're, you're usually right. We're going to go with that. So, okay.
0: so when no. that, so when the second cancer developed, <coughs> did you, did you do that uh, with a lumpectomy or did you opt for a mastectomy at that point?
1: I went in thinking I was going to have a mastectomy, okay, <laughs> and, uh, a, a double mastectomy. And I thought I'll even explore reconstruction. Kind of. I knew that I would not do silicone implants because I know that there's research out there that it's they're safe and there's research out there that they're not safe. My personal belief is that I do not want that in my body. And once again, I know how my body reacts to foreign substances. It's not going to like those. So I decided I might um, do a, a double mastectomy, but I'd see if I could do it with my own with my own fat from my own body, right? So I went in to see both a plastic surgeon and a surgeon. Well, that was probably, I have to admit, one of the funniest days I've ever been through, as much as it was a horrible uh, reason to have to be there. This is how it went. plastic surgeon looks at me, and she goes, so um, you want to reconstruct with your own fat? She looks at me, and she goes, and where am I getting the fat from? (laughs) And I went... Well, I, you know, I I said, I've got, she said, you have some, but come on, I could make one. And I said to her, what do I pick my favorite one? (laughs) (laughs) At that point, I realized that she had very little sense of humor, but not being the smartest woman in the world at times, I, 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 it didn't click right away. So after I told her, what do I, I pick my favorite one, I turned to my friend who had come with me and I said, oh, I could do one right in the middle. Well, (laughs) my My girlfriend just fell off the chair. She was laughing so hard. And by this time, the surgeon is looking at me like I've grown another head. (laughs) And I'm thinking, this is probably not going to be a good match regardless of what we do here. But um, anyway, I walked out and I remember getting in the car and and crying and saying, okay, I can't, you know, I can't, that's one avenue that's closed to me. I can't do that. So then I went to see the, the general surgeon about the mastectomy. And just thinking, okay, I'll do this without reconstruction. And uh, he said to me, Tina, they're so small. Like, are you sure you want to do this? And I went, no, I'm not sure that I want to do it. I'm doing it because I'm frightened. And he said, well, you know what? We could do this. And he said, if anything else happens, he said, I'll, I'll take you back. I'll keep you in the books. We'll bring you back. He said, I can have you back in here in two weeks. And I went, okay, we'll do it. So I did a lumpectomy again, okay. followed by radiation. No chemo. which my oncologist was was yeah totally on board with the other thing that i never did was i never took tamoxifen
0: okay so were you not estrogen progesterone positive
1: i was but i know again from experience from taking anything that messes with my hormones Oh, my word. I'd be sitting in the basement building something destructive. I know I would be. (laughs) So um, (laughs) they make me crazy. They make me crazy. And um, I can't, yeah, I knew, again, my body would not be happy with that. So that was the one thing that my oncologist and I did fight over for several years. He was saying, you have to try it, you have to try it, you have to try it. And I went, no, it's not for me. And, um, I, I still, to this day, don't believe that it is for me. So,
0: yeah. And again, it goes back to knowing your body and knowing that, um, you know, there, I believe there are within the whole breast cancer world. And I would imagine this is probably the case in, in many other places, um, you know, diseases that there are also those anomalies within, right. Where, you know, there's that small percentage of people that just don't respond well to certain things. Um, you know, so yeah, you just have to know that about yourself and be okay with that decision, right? Like that's, that's the beauty of all of this is that we get to decide, um, when we take that opportunity for ourselves. So, um, so one of the things that we didn't mention, um, Mm -hmm. and this was, um, I mean, we talked about this, I don't know, 20 minutes ago, but um, the genetic testing, what were the results of the genetic testing? Is there a mutation or? I have none. Okay.
1: But the, the trick to that, the catch to that, because I, I did, of course, call my oncologist. I sent him the results and I said, are you surprised by this? And he said, well, I am and I'm not. He said, because he, he said, there's lots of mutations that we haven't found yet, and there's a strong history of breast cancer within my family. My mother, my great grandmother, my aunt—you uh, know, like we—they've all had breast cancer. And there has to be something there that's that's genetic. We just don't know what it is. Yeah. So oddly, when I got that information again, I've had some tissue changes over the last uh, six months, and unfortunately, I'm now back um, having tests every three months again. And after eight years, this is getting really absurd. So I decided that I would do the genetic testing and then decide if I was going to do a mastectomy, a double mastectomy based on the genetic results. Well, the results came back uh, as no known mutation, but oddly, it worked the exact opposite way. I thought what it would do for me was if it came back positive, it would confirm that I would do the mastectomy and not look back. Well, it turned out the results were not positive. But I decided I was going to do it anyway, so I am actually booked. I am doing a double mastectomy. I'm I'm done with this. I'm I'm moving forward, and um, yeah. So I have a surgery date booked in December.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah. And so, um, so by the time that the the podcast releases, you will have had that surgery. Um, so I hope that Yeah. So I hope that goes well for you. Um, and I think that you're right. You know, um, again, like I said before we create stories in our own mind other people create stories for us as well and so there's this idea that you know sometimes when diagnosed with breast cancer it takes a year maybe a year and a half and then you're on with your life right and here you are eight years later still dealing with this stuff um and so it it's not that easy um for many of us it truly is not that easy
1: and I think the other thing, too, that, that I've kind of noticed a gap, and it could be just because I don't live in a really large center, uh, one of the things that seems to happen is that I think the aftercare for cancer is missing. And I think there is this idea that people, um, you know, you, you go through your treatments, you're done, you resume your life, and everything's great. And that is so not the reality for most of us. we were, we're left with, um, with scars and and uh, bodies that don't function like they did before, and the emotional angst of knowing that this thing could go off again anytime without us. So there's there's a lot of care that needs to happen afterwards, and we need to drop this idea that we have, um, like, breast cancer is an easy cancer to have. It's easily cured. It's easily whatever. Uh, And that's so frustrating because I see women whose lives have just been ripped apart and they're trying to put them back together as best they can and not really being able to find the resources to do it.
0: Right. Without support. And that's the biggest Which, thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, and I agree 110 um, <laughs> percent, you know, that really the aftercare for cancer survivors just is not there. And, um, you know, we are really left picking up the pieces and trying to figure out what our new normal is, because it certainly is not the normal that we had before.
1: No, it's not even remotely connected to that kind of normal. So it's. I think we really have a long way to go on educating people who have not had someone go through this or gone through it themselves. We have a long way to go to get that information out there. We're trying. We're trying. And it is getting better. And I love the fact that there are podcasts like yours that talk about it in a real way. And uh, there's more websites that we can access to get information in those groups. At least thank thank God in some ways for social media because now I you know, at the flip of a button, I can actually talk to how many women that have been through this and are at different stages of this and maybe I can help them and maybe they can help me.
0: Right. Yeah. And I love that. I mean, it was, I will fully admit that that was not in place when I was diagnosed. Um, and so I didn't have that resource. So I am absolutely with you in that social media has really changed the way that we're talking about breast cancer um, and for the positives. So, but we still do have a long way to go.
1: We've got a long way to go.
0: Yeah. So one last thing before we go, um, you published a book. I did. Yeah. And I have a copy of it. It is fantastic, by the way. Um, So share a little bit about your book.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm, I am an artist. That's what I do. Actually, I, um, I do teach Uh, I do teach post-secondary, but I teach fine arts, so I teach painting, drawing, video. I've been doing this my whole life. And um, one of the things, I had this very romanticized notion when I first started with all of the treatments and everything that I would be sitting, you know, with my in my chemo chair with my sketchbook and, and drawing, you know, just to process what was going on around me. Well, it was an absurd idea, and I should have known better, because you can't even hold a sketchbook. I mean, you've only got one arm, so you've got to hold something and try to draw at the same time, and you are sick. And I mean, it's just, I thought, oh my God, was I ever off base on this one? But when I was home... I was um, doing a lot of sketchbooks. And I, I do create a lot of sketchbooks. That's sort of my go-to when I can't be in the studio. So I was chronicling a, in a visual sense, what was happening to me. And at the same time, I was writing emails to people. So Because you get tired of having those conversations, and I'm sure you had many of them, yes. where you keep having the conversation and you have it ten times today and you're exhausted by it because it's not, like you really appreciate people caring, but you know, I'm trying to heal here and I can't, yeah, it's keep, too much. I can't keep doing this. It's too much. So I started an email list. And about every two or three weeks I would send out, a, you know, a, an update as to what was happening. And, uh, you know, having a bit of a sense of humor, I tried to make them, you know, a, an equal, equal parts dark light and, you know, funny and whatever else it had to be. So a friend of mine who is an author and a, a very accomplished one, When she saw the sketchbooks, because we went out for lunch one day, and she saw the sketchbooks, and she had been on the receiving end of the update list, and she said, you know, Tina, you need to write a book, and I went, I can't write a book, I'm an artist, and she said, yeah, she said, you can write a book, she said, you've been writing for years, and I thought, well, yeah, I kind of have been, so... I thought, well, how about if I start putting this all together? And then once I started doing that, then I started collecting medical records and I started collecting images and taking a ton of photographs and like it just snowballed. So I often, when I'm when I read, I often tell people I'm an artist who accidentally wrote a book. <laughs> I didn't mean to, but the reality is, is that book has won or placed in 11 different competitions across the U.S. and Canada. My latest one was just in Canada, actually, and uh, the Internet, the Whistlers Independent Book Awards, and I just won the nonfiction category for the book Not in Pink. And uh, so it's been, it's been a journey and a half and uh, I really did want it to touch people. I wanted people to read it and understand how we feel that we're we're still, we have good days, we have bad days, we have mad days, we have sad days, we have all of those. And um, maybe if it just made one person feel better about what they went through, then I would have done what I had sought out to do, what I started to do.
0: Yeah, no, it Uh, is fantastic. And, um, I love it. Um, I love the the visual piece of it as much as I love the um, words. <laughs> um, so it is Not in the Pink by Tina Martel. Um, and where can people find this?
1: Well, I do have a website and uh, it is uh, Not in the Pink. So it's easy to find if you just search it. Uh, it's notinthepink.ca and you can order it from the website. Uh, it is also available on Amazon. And uh, But I'll be perfectly honest, I make more money if you buy it from my website.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There is no shame in that. No um, shame in that. (laughs) Absolutely not. I mean, it is a great book. It is a quality book, and um, it took a lot of time and effort, so good for you. Yeah. I
1: suspect there will be a second one uh, now about the second diagnosis and what I'm going through now because what I'm finding is that as difficult as I found it at the beginning – uh, going through with a double mastectomy and learning everything that's out there again has been, once again, I feel like I'm in college again and uh, learning, you know, one more, like before I went to cancer university, now I'm going to mastectomy university. So I think, again, there'll be a lot of information that perhaps people can share Yeah. and I can share with them. So we are Thank looking, you. actually, I say we because uh, there's there actually is a whole team behind me, a designer and myself. Definitely um, talking about another.
0: Sorry, you cut out there. Another. Okay, that's okay. <laughs>
1: An- thinking about another book. Okay,
0: Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> no worries. Um, so thinking about another book. Um, and that's awesome. I mean, that is, I, I love that. Um, you know, I, you know, it's a traumatic experience the whole way around. But, you know, I I love the fact that you're finding a way to help other people through it.
1: Yes, and I think you did the same thing with what you're doing with your organization and the podcasts. I think there is something about that that experience. If we can if we can break through that lack of education, we can help people understand better and feel better about not you know being really positive about this experience because quite frankly it sucks. And yeah. you know if we can get people to actually understand that this is not a simple process. It is not a positivity does not cure anything. It is pink is not a cure. All of those things, I think, become really, really important for people who are coming up behind us, women that are coming behind us and going, oh, my God, what am I, what do I have to do to get through this?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you, um, I think that is a great point to actually end on. Um, So I'm going to say thank you so much for being on the show. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day and being here with us. So thanks so much.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Melissa. I really, really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com.
1: Thinking about advertising on this podcast, our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.